Hello, everyone. I'm Dion Lomax, and I am Vice Chair of Education for AHLA's Antitrust Practice Group. I want to welcome everyone back which to this podcast. This is part two of our podcast discussing U.S. versus Geisinger Health and Evangelical Community Hospital. I want to thank the AHLA Antitrust Practice Group. And more importantly, I want to thank our guest speakers today. I, Liesl Dunlop is a partner at Axon and Steve View is counsel at Shook Hardy. And they have come to us once again to share their knowledge and expertise with us as relates to some recent developments in the DOJ's case against Geisinger. In fact, just two days ago, the DOJ announced a settlement. And so that's what we're here to talk to you with you about today. And um, so let's just kick it off with Steve. Steve, can you start us off and provide us with a brief overview of the DOJ settlement and how it addresses the issues raised in the complaint? Okay, great. Thank you, Dion, and good morning, everyone. Well, at least good morning for me on the West Coast. Um, anyway, yeah, the um, settlement that the DOJ recently entered into with the defendants, Geisinger and Evangelical, it seems to be narrowly uh, um, designed to address um, their concerns about competition in the area, mainly focused on making sure that Geisinger and Evangelical Health remain competitive, competing and independent um, health systems, health concerns. Um, and it does that by, on a high level by capping Geisinger's ownership, partial ownership interest in evangelical, reducing um, Geisinger Health's interest from 30%, which was part of the original proposed partial acquisition deal, reducing that to a passive ownership now of 7.5%. Also, there are several provisions in the settlement designed to prevent Geisinger from having otherwise influence or control over evangelical and preventing the parties from sharing competitively sensitive information in the future. And also both parties are required to implement um, rather robust antitrust compliance programs going forward. But what's interesting about the settlement is that it also tries to maintain the pro-competitive benefits of the two parties' current and proposed um, collaboration. For example, it still allows um, some quality-enhancing aspects of the deal, allows them to go forward, such as implementation of a new electronic health record system for evangelical with related with assistance from Geisinger and Health. Also, Evangelical can, can, can keep um, $20.3 million already investigated, invested in it by Geisinger, with the majority of that funding going to patient room, a patient room improvement project and the rest for sponsorship of a joint local re recreation and wellness center. Very interesting. Okay, so so Liesl, Steve gave us a little bit of a teaser. So I want to dive a little bit deeper. As you know, as, as you all know, as we all know, in many cases, settlements involving partial ownership issues sometimes have firewall requirements and or they might even require oversight by a compliance monitor. Liesl, can you discuss these aspects of the settlement and walk us through the settlement process in a little bit more detail with respect to those items? Sure, and uh, thanks for having me back on to talk about this really interesting case. Um, so, you know, I, I found the um, provisions on, you know, firewalls and, and particularly the compliance programs really interesting and quite extensive. Um, 
So as Steve said, one of the issues that was raised in the complaint was that uh, the collaboration agreement would enable sharing of competitively sensitive information. So in particular, um, there were a couple of provisions of the collaboration agreement that one of, one of them gave Geisinger a right of first refusal um, over any um, collaboration, uh, partnership, joint venture, acquisition that um, evangelical might enter into with some third party. So in order for that right of first refusal to be able to be exercised, evangelical would have to tell Geisinger about all this stuff, um, you know, before, a, a, you know, at, at an early stage of a potential deal. Um, and maybe even having that provision there would probably, you know, disincentivize them from trying to enter into anything like that. Um, and then the second piece of um, competitively sensitive information were these requirements that Evangelical had to get Geisinger's approval effectively for um, big investments in strategic projects to come out of that original 200 million. Um, and uh, of course, when the um, partial ownership interest got reduced to 7.5 million, that kind of became 20 million, I think. And uh, and then and was specifically designated to a couple of projects. So that they took that out of the equation as well. Um, so those two information sharing opportunities have, have gone with the amended um, agreement, collaboration agreement. And, and though having those kinds of provisions in an agreement between the parties has been prohibited. Um, and you know, there are also express prohibitions on um, sharing of non-public information, include, you know, and again, it says, you know, including about strategic projects and also no access to each other's financial records. Um, but there is going to be some ongoing kind of contact and information flow between them around this um, electronic medical records um, collaboration that, that Steve was talking about. So that part's still there. So that's when the compliance program comes in. Um, and the compliance program provisions here are actually pretty detailed. Um, you know, you, you might remember last year, um, the DOJ established a new office. It's called the Office of Decree Enforcement and Compliance. And so it, the DOJ is really taking a much um, more targeted and focused approach to consent decrees. Um, and enforcement and monitoring of compliance with consent decrees going forward, um, a little bit like the FTC does with its uh, compliance division. Um, so the proposed final judgment says that both defendants have to institute an antitrust compliance program, not only for the proposed final judgment, but for the antitrust laws generally. Um, and we'll talk a little bit later about the no poach stuff. So maybe that's a little arrow towards that. Um, the DOJ actually needs to review and approve the compliance plan. Um, so that's interesting. Um, there are specific provisions about having a compliance officer, um, the trainings that have to be run, the annual certifications they have to get. And again, the DOJ has approval rights over all of this stuff, including the identity of the monitor or the officer. Um, so, and so let, then, me, let me ask you, so, there, so yeah. no, no, there's no provision that requires an independent monitor though. I don't think it's an independent monitor. Okay. I think it's a compliance officer it's described as. And, you know, if you remember when um, there was the eBooks case and Apple ended up with a, 
a big, you know, compliance um, requirement in that consent decree. They did have an outside monitor, but they also had a requirement to appoint an officer into. Yes, that's true. So I think I think it's like I think it's something like that. Um, anyway, then there are also provisions about if if the compliance officer comes across some potential violations of the proposed final judgment, they have a notification and report requirement on that. Um, and then there are all of the, the firewall provisions and they, they have to have a, a, a plan for that firewall and how it's going to work and the DOJ has to review and approve that. So compliance office is going to be quite busy here. Exactly. <laughs> it, uh, and so is the DOJ, it sounds like. <laughs> yeah, that, that's what I mean, at, at the DOJ. Oh, yes, you know, exactly. My friend, my friend Larry Riker and his, and his staff are going to be <laughs> kept a little busy on this for a while. Trying exactly. To yeah, so, and then there are very detailed inspection provisions, um, access provisions that, that I'm used to seeing, but also a right to conduct interviews. And uh, there are references to, um, you know, if necessary, requiring the parties to respond to written interrogatories or provide written reports on things. So, you know, pretty in-depth and detailed provisions on um, you know, post-decree decree compliance. Now, um, can you tell us a little bit about the Tuniac process that, that just very quickly involved here? Sure. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't really have much practical impact on the parties complying with the, the judge, the consent decree, because the way it works is the um, parties agree to comply with the proposed final judgment until it becomes final. So from their perspective, from the party's perspective, you know, this, this doesn't have much imp impact. But the DOJ does have to go through a, a notice and comment process. It's in the TUNI Act. It's a kind of sunshine act to let the public kind of see what's going on in DOJ settlements. And um, the public will have 60 days from publication of the proposed final judgment in the Federal Register. So it will be interesting to see if there are any comments and, and what people might have to say about this. Um, so the, the judgment will become final, probably take about three months. Okay, great, great. So now let's, let's circle back to what, uh, Liesl, I think you just mentioned about the no poach allegations. And Steve, I'm coming back to you this time. <laughs> so there are no poach allegations in the complaint, yet the DOJ hasn't seemed to take an, any action on that just yet. Um, so reading the tea leaves, what do you think that this means? Okay, yeah, that's good. And granted, you know, I have no insight into what the DOJ <laughs> is doing. I'm not part of that team. This is just conjecture. Yeah. Uh, but my, you know, my best guess as a former enforcer myself at the FTC is that perhaps they didn't feel it was strong enough evidence um, for, you know, a standalone, standalone allegation. I think it was just one paragraph, um, one or two paragraphs in the complaint. Um, also, so they thought maybe it wasn't strong enough for a standoff, standalone allegation, but at least strong enough to help them with their coordinated effects story. Um, then also to just when you're litigating, the bigger concern is, you know, preventing this partial acquisition. So, you know, they're concerned that maybe, you know, getting into detail about a separate um, no poach agreement that these guys had going back before, perhaps before, well, allegedly before um, they entered into the partial acquisition agreement, the concern is that would just interfere um, with, you know, the nice clean um, story they wanted to tell at trial, uh, you know, gearing up for trial. Um, now there is, uh, the, the, the settlement agreement um, does address that 
that. Um, there is a provision prohibiting um, the parties from, you know, advising or consulting in the hiring or recruiting, uh, respectively, of certain senior uh, level employees. So you can see that as a nod to that. Um, although, you know, you've seen that in other types of um, settlements dealing with um, mergers. Um, one other thing too, and I'll jump the gun a little bit, is that just for the audience, um, the DOJ, despite what it did with those allegations with that issue in this complaint, the DOJ takes um, no, no alleged no poach agreements um, or even uh, or non-solicitation or even alleged wage fixing, the salary fixing agreements, basically labor market competition takes that seriously. Um, you know, in the past, these allegations would have been dealt with through civil enforcement by the DOJ and the FTC. Um, now we've seen a call for now the DOJ to use its criminal powers um, to enforce, um, you know, alleged violations of uh, antitrust law as it relates to labor competition. In fact, just this past month, uh, the DOJ was able to secure its first criminal indictment of, 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 of for, the, for uh, an alleged non, no, no poach agreement. Um, and this was in the healthcare arena. Um, this was against surgical care affiliates, a unit of United Health, which is an operator of outpatient surgical facilities. Um, allegedly, the, they're alleged to have reached um, not, no poach agreements with certain healthcare operators in Texas and Colorado. And then before that, just a month before that, in Texas, uh, the DOJ was able to secure a criminal indictment of Nuraj Jindal, the owner, former owner of a therapist staffing company for allegedly reaching agreements with, um, with competitors, not no poach agreements, but allegedly reaching agreements on um, salary um, to um, therapists um, in okay. Texas. So in terms of labor market competition in healthcare, um, just to give a warning to folks who have clients in this area, um, the DOJ takes this very seriously and, you know, if you need assistance in terms of counseling your clients to do the right thing, they're now going after these using their criminal powers. So, you know, criminal fines and something that's very scary, um, jail time, the potential for that. Right. So something to keep in mind. Yeah, Absolutely. I mean, that, that's something I was going to point out, Steve, you know, the, the no poach allegation in the, in the civil complaint on the partial acquisition is, is just that one paragraph. But um, now that the DOJ is prosecuting this stuff criminally, um, there's probably a you know different group um, looking at it if, if they are. Assume that they are, um, and you know they'll be they'll be looking to to bring a criminal indictment here rather than you know the civil case. So that that's another reason you know for it being separated. Yeah, absolutely. And let's not forget, you know, you, you've got a bunch of um, class action lawsuits that often get filed in these matters. And as we both, as we all know, within the last month, there have been two follow on civil class actions <laughs> that were filed against the parties here. And so I'd like both of you just to speak to that. Lisa, let's kick it off with you. Can you give us a, a little bit of a flavor of what those two actions entail? Sure. So, um, Two putative class actions, um, one brought by a class of nurses and the other by a class of um, nursing assistants or patient access representatives, as they're called. Um, uh, the nurses' cases is the lead plaintiff is Lieb and the other one is Sauer. Um, both brought in District Court, Middle District of Pennsylvania, um, 
treble damages actions, uh, alleging violation of section one and corresponding Pennsylvania antitrust laws. And the period, um, the alleged um, no poach agreement period is May 2015 until August 2020, which is when the DOJ's complaint, uh, DOJ's complaint was filed. So they're basing, basically alleging that this was going on all through um, the DOJ's investigation um, until the complaint was filed. Um, you know, the complaints rely pretty heavily on the DOJ complaint in the partial acquisition matter. Um, you know, they repeat all of the allegations about, you know, the market positions of Geisinger and Evangelical and kind of extrapolate from that that they are the dominant employers of healthcare workers in that region. Um, you know, they refer to the DOJ um, and FTC antitrust guidance on human professional for human profession, human resources professionals, um, where they're getting their theories from. Um, they repeat that specific allegation that's in the DOJ complaint, uh, which relates to a communication between Geisinger and evangelical um, people um, about nurses poaching each other's nurses. Um, but that is the only specific allegation about, you know, that evidence is the agreement. They try to infer the agreement from a whole lot of other stuff. Um, there's some very interesting um, description of the dynamics of competition uh, in healthcare um, employment um, in terms of, you know, reactive, um, offering reactive pay and proactively increasing pay and how the dynamic works internally. So even people who aren't going to leave are going to get more money because there's an internal equity type of um, issue. I found all of that quite fascinating, the, the dynamics of it. <laughs> um, but, but it's not very specific evidence about a, a conspiracy. And, yeah. you know, it, it's going to, it would be interesting, you know, if they go ahead um, and, uh, you know, there's going to be motions to dismiss filed as, as there often are, um, you know, there aren't a lot of really specific allegations of the who, what, when, how, why of a conspiracy. There's this one allegation taken from the DOJ complaint, so it's kind of secondhand already about communications between the nurse, between the CEOs and the HR people about the nurses. I mean, that's going to be able to be substantiated because it's come directly out of some documents, I imagine. Um, but apart from that, they're alleging regular touch base meetings, but there's no allegations of who was there or what was said. Um, they mentioned some um, DOJ information sharing allegations about a physician loan agreement. Um, I mean, it's, yeah, it's kind of about employment, but it's not really very direct on a no poach conspiracy. Um, they, they mentioned some antitrust challenges about prior Geisinger acquisitions. I mean, that's not really relevant to <laughs> no poach yeah. agreement. So it's, it's good <laughs> on the theory, but it's a little thin on the conspiracy claims right now. So my read is, I think, that they're waiting for the DOJ to bring their criminal enforcement action. And then it will just turn into the usual, you know, cartel case with the follow-on. So once, once there's a criminal plea, um, then, you know, Section 4 lets you just, you know, follow on and assume the, assume the, um, the illegality. I agree with Lisa. Yeah, um, these are these two follow-ons. Um, yeah, if you read the complaint, um, yeah, it just it there's a lot of uh, pretty much a lot a lot of it taken from the DOJ complaint. I mean, they're relying on as Lisa um, um, suggested, perhaps 
waiting for the DOJ um, to file its criminal case and just see what they can get from that from uh, via Section 4. And also, if they're able to, uh, you know, to um, survive the motion to desist, that will undoubtedly come their way, um, discovery in their own case, which may turn up some interesting documents, some interesting information. Um, you know, I mean, yeah, this is just as this is similar to what you've seen in other cases dealing with price fixing um, conspiracies, um, you know, there's a whole new world where we're seeing this aggressive section one enforcement, both by the government and by private parties um, in the in the in the labor market in terms of labor competition. So this is something folks need to be very concerned of um, in terms of, you know, the public sector, public enforcement. Politically, you know, it's a no-brainer, especially in these times. These concerns, uh, you know, rising inequality. Um, you know, it's a great way. You know, if you're the DOJ um, or even the FTC, you know, for, you know, for in fact, for actions where it might be more appropriate for the FTC to use the civil enforcement, um, you know, power. You know, it's a no-brainer. You know, to get political support for your agency. You know, bipartisan, on a bipartisan basis. Um, and for, you know, you know, private attorney for private plaintiffs. Yeah, it's, it can be a lucrative area. So something I think folks need definitely need to keep on their radar, especially um, in um, the healthcare arena. Yeah, yeah. Um, one of the things that, that strikes me about all this activity, particularly with respect to the criminal enforcement in the healthcare area is that you know, when we were all began practicing, <laughs> we're all around the same age. When we started, <laughs> began practicing in healthcare and I trust, <laughs> was unheard of to have a criminal indictment of a, a, health, a healthcare entity, right? So times have definitely changed. Yeah. Times have definitely changed. Yeah. But, but I just want yeah, to- I started in the FTC and I was doing like, oh, sorry. No, yeah, because I remember like I started, yeah, we're at the same age and I started at the FTC around the turn of the century. That's how old I am. Um, <laughs> a lot of my first cases, you know, were, you know, at the FTC, you know, we were going after, we saw we had like great debt to rights evidence of literal price fixing um, reimbursement rates among physicians, you know, um, and, you know, we issue strong orders, but, you know, it was like if this was in any other <laughs> industry, any other area, yeah, it would be criminal. Steve, when you were at the FTC, yeah. I was at the DLJ. I was in the healthcare task force. Mm. And yeah, we would they were yeah. civil consent decrees, you know? So it's a, it's definitely yeah. a new yeah. day. Aliza, what were you gonna say? Well, I was just gonna say, you know, I, I wasn't in the FTC or the DOJ, but yeah, you know, I was around at that time. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and you know, it's really just a, it, it's interesting how it has changed. It, it, you know, it's just a um, another example of of the agency's view that you know healthcare is is the same as any other industry, and the antitrust laws apply. And you know, we we still have to, particularly this concern with labour markets. Though I think that's really part of the yeah. the popular discussion around antitrust. It's something that hasn't really been. Um, a feature. I mean, you have some people saying you should take impact on labor markets into account in merger analysis. So, you know, you usually think of synergies as, as something good. Well, well, maybe not so good when, you know, you personally are a synergy. So, well, there you go. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> wow. Well, yeah. um, 
I, I just have to say, this has been delightful, both parts one and part two. And um, I just so appreciate you guys. And look, look, you guys might, we might be the dream team. I might be calling on you to talk about another case in the near future. So but we, um, but we, we uh, might have a guilty plea coming up, right? Oh, this is true. This <laughs> yeah, is true. Exactly. Yeah. We may have a part three. Yeah. Stay tuned. Yeah. Audience, uh, this, stay tuned. Yeah. <laughs> Well, to follow well, the private action, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. So well, we'll wrap this one up for now. Stay tuned, possibly for a part three. We don't know. But once again, I want to thank Liesl and Steve. And on behalf of the AHLA Antitrust Practice Group, I want to thank everyone for listening to our podcast today. Take care. <laughs>